the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. I want you to know all of you are on my heart this week. I prayed for you. I lifted you up in prayer. Some I know something about, so I was able to pray more specifically. Others I know a little less about, but I still took you to the throne of grace. I just love every single one of you. And it's really a privilege and an honor for me to be here every single week that I'm in town to be able to open up God's Word and share with you what it says and the insights that I'm learning from His Word. And I'm so excited because I want you to know this as well. I'm always grateful when we have guests that are coming in, whether they're here for the first time or they're kind of just testing out our church to see if this is a place where they really want to learn God's Word to apply to their lives. So I'm glad that you're here. But sometimes when you're an expositional preacher, you're going to be going through a book of the Bible and sometimes we just get a a standalone message. And I try to make those messages as standalone as I can based on the context, but to get the full brunt of what God has to say, to get the full picture, to really understand this wonderful meal, it's good for you to have a good picture of the entire letter that Paul is writing so that you have a a bigger picture because Paul is one of those wonderful teachers that he builds his argument one upon the other as he's leading the thinking and the heart and the life of the people who would be reading this so that they would really know the Lord correctly, clearly, of course, and correctly, and then be able to apply him to their lives. And so I really want you to know this is a challenge challenge that I have because I have to do a little bit of always bringing you back from where we were before so you know where we are so you kind of know where we're headed. So to begin with, I'd like you to have your Bibles because we're going to be learning God's Word today, not just hearing a sermon from some guy that that just uh, have maybe read the Bible. So if you will, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we provide Bibles in our chairs around. So if you look, just reach under the chair, pull it out, turn to Romans. If you have one with you, open it up to Romans 2. If you have a smartphone and you have the opportunity to go to a New American Standard, it's more of a literal translation. And I prefer that more than just an equivalent version at least for Bible teaching. So if you'd like, you might want to open that up. So let me remind you again that Paul is bringing his uh, readers and the listeners to this message from an area of sin to salvation. He's moving it then into the idea of sanctification and security and, of course, the sovereignty of God and then finally into service. And he's going to do that throughout this entire letter. Paul is now writing this to a church in Rome, so the primary audience to whom is receiving this would be those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, others might be kind of looking in the windows who are are there, kind of finding out what is being read to them. So if you remember now, he wrote it, it's now sent to Rome, Rome gets it, the church there, and now they open it up and they begin to read to those people what Paul has written. And of course, what Paul has written is really God's mind on paper, on truth, that God wanted that church to know at that time, through Paul, but also 
also by extension to people like you and me who live today. And so today, this message is even for us. Now, sometimes when people read the Bible, they start reading and they think it's such an archaic book. It's, you know, 2,000 years old if you're in the New Testament and many more thousand years old if you're in the Old Testament. So what does this really have? It's nothing more than a religious history book that has some great teaching in it, maybe some great uh, principles, but I really can't relate as much to today. Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to let you know that this book, it cuts all different age groups, it cuts all different times of history, it cuts through all different cultural groups, because even in the midst of all of this, God's Word is embedded for us to be able to connect to Him today. So let's just do a quick little review as he begins writing this. He talks about his love for the Roman people, the Roman Christians, of course, and then he starts telling them a little bit about the people that they live around. Those would be the people that, we, if you'll notice in your notes here, these are the people that we would call secularists. These would be the ones who lived in such a way that they rebelled against God so much that they rebelled against God that they rejected God so much. And therefore, they lived an ungodly life, a life without God, an unrighteous life, a life as if it had no rules. And then God said, those kinds of people, he said, I'm going to just turn you over to your own world, your own way. And of course, he turned them over to the wrong living, the wrong loving, the wrong thinking. And of course, their whole lives just imploded and, and just, just completely disintegrated into such horrible depravity. And he says, those people are lost. Those people need salvation. Those people need to be forgiven. And those people can be forgiven if they would place their faith alone in Christ. And of course, I step back from that and I say, I am so glad that God will save anyone no matter how bad they've been. So whoever might be listening to us today that perhaps are in such a state that you've lived in such a condition that you feel like you are unsavable, you're unredeemable, you're unforgivable, I want you to know that God says as long as that you're alive, that you have that potentiality to become a blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, sins forgiven, and a home in heaven. Even if your life has been spent denigrating God, there still is hope for you. But I'll tell you, one second after you die, there is no more hope for you then. Well, then he moves to the next group of people. These would be the people that we call the moralists. These are the people that would be the respectable kind of people. They would be hearing a message like this, and they'd be thinking about those people that were living such a reprobate life. They'd say, I'm not a pervert. I'm not doing all those wicked things. I don't have that kind of anger. In fact, look at me. I'm a pretty good guy right here. I have a good relationship with my family. I pay my taxes. I pay my bills on time. I treat everybody with respect. I'm nowhere like those kind of people. And, of course, the Apostle Paul speaks to them and reminds them that no matter how good they might be, they still need a Savior. And I often find that those people who are the furthest from the Lord are the easiest ones to lead to Christ. Those that seem to be so self-righteous, it's harder to get them lost than it is to get them saved for them to be able to sense how lost they really are. Maybe you know people like that today. They don't go to church. They're not religious. They're not so bad like the rest of the world that does horrible, wicked things. But yet at the same time, they lean on their own self-righteousness. Do you know those people still are sinners because God says that in order to go to heaven, we have to be 100% perfect. In fact, Revelation 21, 27 says, if I commit one lie, I will not enter into heaven. If I break the law in only one point, I'm guilty of breaking all the law. If I haven't done the breaking of the law outwardly, I've done breaking of the law inwardly in my thought life. And so God says, even for those who are moral, they need redemption, they need forgiveness, and they need Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we don't rely upon our good works. In fact, he goes, on to say good works won't save us. Now we're into a third class of people that need forgiveness. And out of all the three groups of people that need Jesus Christ, 
To me, this seems to be almost the most difficult to try to lead to Christ. We will call these the religionist people. These would be the ones who are religious. These are the ones that are saying, okay, I'm not so bad like those wicked, horrible, depraved people. At the same time, I'm a little bit more than these moralists because I am vitally connected to God. And so they're the real religious people. Now, we know that different people will submit to different religions, and we might look at that, but that's more like a moralist view. I would like to look at it more of those who seem to be in touch with our God. And that's why he is speaking to a group of people here that would be the Jewish people. They would be the people that more than likely would be thinking that they have a hotline to God because of many different reasons. One of those reasons is because the majority of the Bible and some Bible scholars believe that all of Scripture was given to Jewish people to write. We at least know that the Old Testament was. We all know that God gave the Jewish people proper land. He's going to give them a proper place. They are very special people. We'll talk more about that next week than this week. So they had that feeling of superiority. So that would be the kind of people you might meet in your life. Maybe they're not Jewish, but you know people who really are very religious. These would be the people that go to all different kinds of churches. They might carry a Bible. They talk about prayer. They might sing a song. They might show up on Easter or Christmas Eve. The religious people that recognize there is a God and Jesus Christ is real in some measure. And so they kind of fit into that camp. And you want to tell them, you are lost. You need a Savior. You need to trust Christ as your Savior. And they're saying, what? Why me? Why would that be the case? So I think it would be good for us to begin by, first of all, defining and explaining what religion is, because we who are Christians here, we don't follow the Christian religion. So let's find out what the word religion means. The word religion actually comes from two Latin words that are brought together. One word is the word re, and of course we know what re means. That means to go back or to do again, go back. The word ligio, we get our word ligament, which we get to mean binding. So re ligio means to bind back. So a definition of religion is pretty simple. It's just man's way to try to get himself back up to God, to somehow connect better to God. So if you really talk to people of various religions, you're going to find that they're trying to do something to either please God or get connected to God. But in that doing is going to be a certain amount of their own effort. So in other words, they have bought into a a teaching that either says in order to go to heaven you have to please God or you've got to follow a set of spiritual guidelines or rules in order to do this or do something that is spiritual or religious so in some measure God will smile and he will allow you to go to heaven maybe forgive you of your sin. So somehow salvation is found in man rather than only in Christ God. Now this is important you might want to mark this down in some measure in your notes because this is key. Whenever you engage a conversation with someone who um, is out there and who is religious, I want you to be listening during that conversation when you start pointing in the direction of salvation and what it means to be saved. And you will find that whatever religions that are out there, it will all boil down to either it's all of grace or works. It will either be grace versus works. Did you catch that? It'll be either grace versus works. So if you want to, you engage, whether they're Buddhist or even Roman Catholics or whether they're Baptist or Lutherans or whatever, as you engage their conversation, you're want to listen to, are they adding anything into the salvation message that would be works? So all of a sudden, you've got this conflict, grace versus works. Now let me scramble it up a little bit more to show you how very serious this can be. You'll have those that'll say, yes, it is by grace. And you smile at that very moment that they say it's by grace. 
But then in it, they'll say, you also have to either do something to either get saved with grace or you have to do something once you receive God's grace to stay saved. So what they've done with grace, they've added works to it. And once you put grace and works together, it's neither grace nor works any longer. It's all kind of mixed up. So again, it still boils down to, is it either by grace or by works? And you're going to find as we continue our study through the book of Romans that what Paul is going to do is he's going to emphasize the idea of grace. You'll hear that a lot, but especially of faith. And so our faith in Christ, by the grace he's given to us, we have eternal life, not by any good deeds we do ourselves. So I thought now what might be good would be to take you through this passage of Scripture. And I would like to give you, through this passage of Scripture, what we might call eight, or eight characteristics of a religious person who might be relying upon some part of their own good works in order to get them saved. In other words, something about them is about them and their religion that's keeping them from coming to Christ where they need to know that it's by faith alone in Christ alone. And there's eight of these in this passage. And so we're going to kind of go through this as it identifies it. Now, the root issue is we're dealing with people. Basic bottom line is they're very prideful. They're very proud. It's all about, I've done, I've arrived, I can do this, look at who I am, and you'll see where we're going with it. So if you'd like to follow along as I go through this passage, we're going to kind of take a word or two, a few phrases, and then kind of go through a block of verses, but you'll be able to easily see eight characteristics of a religious person. And that religious person still needs to know, as religious as, as good as they are, as much religion as they follow, they cannot depend upon any religiosity to get them to heaven. It's only in Jesus Christ that they place their faith. So with that in mind, let's look at number one. The first part of verse 17, as we're looking at Romans 2, 17, he's now writing and he says, Paul's writing, he says, but if you bear the name Jew. So what they're doing now, they're relying upon, I guess you would call it a label. If you bear the name or the title or if you claim to be a Jew. So they're kind of wearing a label. So many religious people will be wearing labels and they count upon their label. Look at who I am. Look what I've accomplished. Look at what I'm a part of. Now, for some of you, have you ever wanted to know, how come sometimes they're referred to as Hebrews, sometimes they're referred to as Israelites, and how did they ever get the name Jew or Jewish? Where did that ever come from? Have any of you wondered that before? If you did, would you raise your hand? Have you ever wondered where they got their name Jew? Well, let me help you out with that just a little bit. In the Bible days, they really got their name, Hebrews or Israelites, primarily when Abraham was singled out as what we might call the father of the Jewish nation, if I could use that term. And so you have Abraham. And so through Abraham, that's how the Jewish nation became and got all their promises. Now, as you go a little bit further, you're going to find that there were children that were born, Abraham and then subsequent children. And as you did that, you had what were then 12 tribes. One of those tribes was called the tribe of Judah. Now, that tribe of Judah took it all the way through the time of David. And I'll pause for a moment and say David was of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. All right, now, when Solomon became king, which was the son of David, as soon as Solomon died, there was a great kind of infighting, civil war going on, and the two areas, well, I should say Israel, was divided into two areas. You had the northern tribes, and you had the southern tribes. And the southern tribe was Judah. Now, let's stay with that for a moment. The word Judah actually means praise or praise to God or praise of God. So the idea is Judah is praising God. And about the time of the Babylonian captivity, when things were really falling apart with the Israelites, that's when it seems like the name, identification, label, Jew, short for Judah, 
Jew means praise, Jewish praise coming from Judah, began to pick up steam. So since about the time of Christ and thereafter, you're going to find that they're not so much referred to as Israelites or, or Hebrews. They're referred to as Jews or Jewish people. So that's why at this particular time you're seeing Paul talk about and you say that you're a Jew. That was a label that they had. Now that was going on in those days. In a few moments you're going to see that even that label isn't going to save them as we go through the context of scripture. But let's pause and talk about this in our own world. You might know people today that really rely upon their title of where they are. For example, if you went up to someone and you said, are you a Christian? They might say, sure I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic. Or you might say, are you a Christian? And they say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. I was, um, I was born in America, so that must make me a Christian. Now, while you and I will hold the name or the title of the label Christian dearly to us, we need to remember that the word Christian, although it was first uh, used in Scripture later on after the church was founded, it really stood for, if I can make it real simple, a Christ one. Now, today we would say, okay, I got that Christ one. Well, back in the Bible days, when you put that little term against the backdrop of all the other stuff, and there were no other denominations and, quote, religions out there, when you said you were a Christ one, they knew that you were one who placed your faith alone in Jesus Christ. So back then, when you'd say, I'm a Christian, it meant something. Today, if you get into a conversation with someone on the job or maybe your neighbor and you start talking about it, you're going to find that most people will classify Christians the following. Well, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. I'm certainly not Muslim. I'm not Buddhist. So that must mean now I'm a Christian. So now any religion out there that would put Christ somewhere in it in a in a very important area, they would say, we're Christian. You would even find some of that with some of the cults would say, we're Christian. And that's why there's even more challenges when you begin to talk to even those that are cults. They would say, well, I'm a Christian. We believe pretty much the same way. We might wear special underwear or something, but we're different than you in only small areas. But we still believe the same thing. That is why today when I begin to share the gospel or the simple plan of salvation, I don't begin by saying, are you a Christian? Because right away they might say yes, and the tendency then is to say, ooh, good, I don't have to go any further, we can get on another subject now. I would much rather prefer to maybe enter into a discussion that would get us into the gospel without us having to climb over the term Christian. Now that's why I'm giving you this bit of caution that you might not lead in your conversation, are you a Christian, and automatically assume when they say yes, that they're a Christian, that they are a true, blood-bought, born-again believer in Christ. You want to go a little bit further because you want to find out in their belief system, here it is, are they believing something that is purely of grace or is in there something of works or a combination of grace and works? Because what you want them to do is to know biblically and accurately that salvation is purely of grace. So Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Do you got that? All right. So that's why I'm very careful with labels. Uh, last night I had the opportunity to speak to a, a group of people. There was a room full of people and seated next to me was this lady and there was a guy that spoke before me and he was speaking in another language. Now this wasn't a tongues meeting. It was just somebody there that was giving a, a, an address to a particular um, ethnic group and they were speaking in that ethnic group's language and so I leaned over to this person and I said this person speaks like he's a pastor but I don't know what he is saying and she says oh he is a pastor but I don't know what church or anything like that because I'm a Catholic 
Okay, and I said, that's great, I understand. All right, so we did that. So now it was my turn to bring everything to a close in this big meeting. I was the last speaker of the night, which I, I so much like to be the last speaker. I really do. The problem is I have less time, and I have to speak faster, and I usually go long, and then I'm the not the least popular one. But anyway, back to this. So when I started the meeting, like I have done other places, and some of you in the room have heard me do this, when I'm in a place where I don't know everyone, getting back to the label issue... With a little bit of humor, I tell them, you know, labels really don't matter with the Lord. And I know they might mean a lot to us, and we hold on to them because we have our identity sometimes with those labels. You know, at the same time, they don't matter. Because when we die, if we're wearing a tag or a label, and we go up, they'll blow off. If we go down, they burn off. The real issue is, do we have Jesus Christ as our personal Savior? And so I began my presentation with this large group of people. And it seemed like for that moment there, while I respected whatever the label they might have, I wanted them to know that we do not rely upon any labels to get us to heaven. We rely upon Jesus Christ and the finished work that he's done for us on the cross. Do you agree with that? So that's this point when he starts out by saying, don't rely on a label. But if you bear the name Jew, and he goes into the next one, and rely upon the law. I love this about the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit is speaking, in a sense, through Paul, and he's building his case, all right? If you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law, he's kind of coming up for the kill. That would be someone who would rely on what I call rules and regulations. If you rely upon the law, rules and regulations. Now, in this context, when Paul is talking to the Jews, because that's the primary object of this part of it, although it's a wider audience, but right now he's speaking about the Jews. When he said the law, the question is, is what law? Which laws? How many laws? Where in the Bible? How, how do we really get this? Well, technically, you would have what we call the Decalogue. The Decalogue, Deca means 10, like dozen means 12. Deca, 10. So if I'm going to talk about the 10 what, what would you think I'd be talking about? The 10 what in the law? Everyone, the 10 commandments, okay? Now, do you know, though, that those Ten Commandments are only a small portion of hundreds of other laws? Do you, do you get that? All right. So once you understand that he's saying you are the ones here to rely upon the law. Now, if they want to expand it, many Jewish people would see that the law would be encapsulated in primarily five books of the Old Testament. You would call those the Pentateuch. Penta means five. Pentateuch, the five books, the five books of the law, we might say. Because they're kind of sprinkled and repeated in there again and again. But basically, it's ten primary laws and then it branches out from that. And I don't have time to go through the different kinds of laws and how they're faceted, but the law in general. Now, you'll have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That would be the law. So he says, if you're relying upon the law, that can get you to heaven. Now, again, some of you might say, well, the laws, they're really good. Sometimes when you engage someone, they will say, you know, religions are really good. That's what really keeps society together are all these different religions, you know. We want to follow that. They've got good principles for life. I, I shudder when I hear that because it sounds a low information first level. It sounds so good. But when I, when I run that kind of logic through um, history, I mean, most of our wars were fought over different religious beliefs. Don't you agree with that? You know, so how can you say it brings society together? It brings a society together against another society that's living their societal ways based on their religion of their whatever, and we got what we got. All right. So, again, the law. All right. So, some of you are saying, does that mean that the law is bad? You know, 
I don't want you to leave here today. You've got to come back next week because I'm going to show you the value of the Jewish people and all of that as it fits into the plan of God. You will hear that next week. But for right now, if you're relying upon your label, you're relying upon the law, you cannot have eternal life. Next week we're going to learn at least two, the most two, most primary reasons for the law. So the law is good, the Bible says. The law has purpose. But again, the law can't get us into heaven. Let's step away from the law just a moment because some of you might not be sharing your faith with Jewish people. You might be sharing your faith with just some religious person out there. And they might have their set of law. Like the Jews would say, we believe the law. What they're really generally saying is, you know, we are relying upon our book here. All right? That would be like a religious person that says, you know what, I, I have the Bible. I, I got the Bible. I, I, I'm a Christian. I, I'm going to heaven. I, I've got a Bible somewhere in my house. So I, I got it there. They might even be bragging so much and say, I even have the right translation of the Bible. Okay. Well, having a Bible, does that get you into heaven? No, it doesn't. This is not a ticket. We don't die and take this with us from the casket to the pearly gates and say, okay, punch it, Lord. I got it. I can come in now. This is a great book, but in it, it will give us the teaching of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, even said, you search the scriptures, basically for salvation, but in it, you're going to find me. They looked all over scripture, but they didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that would pay for sin. So again, you can have the book and it'll point you to Christ. But just having the law, having the book, will not ever give anyone eternal life, you or me or anyone else. So I encourage you to get a Bible. I encourage you to read it. But remember that the thread that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and I like to say from index to maps, that thread is the gospel, the blood of Jesus Christ that ties us all together. So, again, I'd be very careful about going up to someone. Are you a Christian? Yes, I have a Bible. Oh, you must be saved. Just because they have a Bible, they aren't saved. Now let's say the person says, I do have a Bible. Sometimes I even ask them, do you have a Bible? I don't necessarily say, and do you read it? You know, because I don't want to be a condemnatory person. I do. What I like to say, they have a Bible, I said, would you mind if... You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.